Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artisan songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Every Monday, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1923-4, where today we'll get to finally focus on some of the more impressive musicians of the 20s, Isham Jones and Sidney Bechet. We'll also be looking at Billy Jones, Billy Murray, Dolly Kay, Clarence Williams, and French artist Felix Mayall, who had the first music video with sound. We'll start by taking a look at the least likely familiar name on that list, French artist Felix Mayall. Felix, outside of the many artists who would become American immigrants in the late 1800s and early 1900s, made his career in France and would have little notoriety here. Except for one thing. 22 years before the advent of the talking motion picture, he made the first music videos with a technology called the phonoscene. You've probably heard, and we've repeated here, that the first movie with synchronized sound was The Jazz Singer starring Al Jolson. And that's true if you look at it from having the soundtrack as a part of the film itself. But with phono scenes, you recorded a record and then shot a film lip-syncing it, and when played together, they lined up perfectly. Really, it's a matter of splitting hairs when we look at how the technology produces synchronized sounds, but the fact of the matter is that it did. You can even find the phono scenes online today on YouTube, colorized and cleaned up. And the fact that Mayall was singing songs on the film makes them the first music videos. And we're not talking about music videos that predate the jazz singer by four or five years. The videos we're talking about here predate the jazz singer by 22 years, as they came out in 1905. Of Mayall's contributions to music, which started when he debuted on stage at six years old, one of the most important is to that of SpongeBob SquarePants, and I'll explain. In the early 1900s, a young man named Maurice Chevalier was impersonating Mayall in French cafes to make money. Mayall was a popular performer, so Chevalier was just trying to glom onto the well-known performer. Mayall found out about it, and instead of confronting him directly, he went to see Chevalier, and he thought he had great talent, so he let him continue. Well, Chevalier was a very industrious young man and leveraged that opportunity into bigger and better ones. And by 1930, he would have his first hit in the U.S. with Living in the Sunshine, Loving in the Moonlight. That song would go on to be covered 38 years later from then, in 1968, by Tiny Tim as a performer of what was then called Americana. And Tiny Tim's cover would go on to become the soundtrack to one of the most iconic scenes in SpongeBob SquarePants. And for that, we can thank Felix Mayall for setting it all into motion over 100 years ago. Now, in contrast, our next star, Billy Jones, was not recently featured on SpongeBob that I'm aware of, and he was born in the U.S. in 1889. He would work in banking and milling before taking on a career as a vocalist, pairing with Ernest Hare to become the most highly paid radio stars of 1928, earning $1,250 a week, equivalent to about a million dollars a year now. With his partner, Jones would sing popular songs on the radio and then make humorous small talk. Today's Yes, We Have No Bananas was a popular song that would be recorded by many stars of the day, and Jones would later record a sequel called I've Got the Yes, We've Got No Bananas Blues, and I'm not looking forward to any of this. On the other hand, something I am looking forward to is that of the Clarence Williams Five, and Clarence Williams was born in Plaquemine, Louisiana, and would run away from home in 1905 at the age of 12 years old to join Billy Kersan's minstrel show before moving to New Orleans. He worked with a music publisher as a pianist, but would really make a mark as a manager for other artists in the area. 
He toured a bit with W.C. Handy before settling in New York City, where he became the head of African-American recording for OK Records, one of the premier labels for black and lesser-known genre artists. In his role at OK, he would actually go on to play piano on a ton of recordings as the house pianist for whenever one was needed to back a track. Clarence Williams himself is important, but musically the highlight here is Sidney Bechet, who is recorded as part of the Clarence Williams Five. Williams formed the band after the success of King Oliver's band to see if there was any money to be made by other artists in the genre. What ended up happening was an arms race for solo supremacy between Bechet and Armstrong, which I am excited to get to. For today, we'll hear Wildcat Blues and get our first taste of Sidney Bechet, who will go on to become a storied and important figure, and whose career we will highlight in future episodes. Finally today, for new artists, we have Dolly Kay, who was born in New York in 1900. Upon seeing a vaudeville performance around 1920, she decided she wanted to do that, so she introduced herself to an agent. He auditioned her, hired her on the spot, and she was recording with Columbia, one of the biggest labels in the country, starting in 1921. And sure, why not? Those were the times where you just got an agent and boom, you were famous. Within just two more years, she would have a top 100 hit with the song that we'll hear today, You've Got to See Mama Every Night, which we also heard Sophie Tucker sing a few episodes ago. We'll have to see who does a better job and if Dolly Kay deserved her instant success. Now, almost everyone in today's episode is new to Cunningham's Law Review, but we have previously heard from Billy Murray and Isham Jones. We won't go into their entire bio, but here's three short facts that you should know about them. Billy Murray was the son of Irish immigrants, born in Philadelphia in 1877, and after moving to Colorado at a young age, became known as the Denver Nightingale. He became one of the most popular singers in the acoustic era, but had trouble after the electric microphone came into the mainstream use in the mid-1920s because his singing style, which he called hammering, would be too harsh for the more sensitive recording equipment of the electric era. However, he has scored well in his previous appearances, and his approach to comedy is a little bit more nuanced than his contemporaries. Most of the time, Murray was recording the popular songs of the day, and last we heard from him in 1922-3, he was duking it out with Frank Crummett on Stumbling, where he narrowly had the better version with a score of 13-12. to Now, Isham Jones, born in 1894 in Colton, Ohio, moved with his family to Saginaw, Michigan when Jones was young, but he would make his start in Chicago by composing the song We're in the Army Now in 1917. While his 1920 and previous work is interesting, Jones would go on to become one of the most popular band leaders of the early 20th century, especially starting this year, and today we are going to hear a few of his songs that all charted in the top 100 for the year. We'll have to see if the big numbers are backed up by big performances as well. In our 1921 episode on Jones, he scored a 16 with his single song reviewed that year, and in 1922 scored double 17s, so I'm hopeful he'll continue his upward trend this year. So let's stop talking about the music and let's start listening. For those of you listening to the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you, which includes all of the music as a part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1923-4. You don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or follow us on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for Side A of episode 1923-4. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B.
Thanks for joining us back on Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1923-4, where we're listening to a wide variety of artists today, including Isham Jones, who had the number three hit for this year. This is the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. And we'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Let's first take a look at Yes, We Have No Bananas by Billy Jones. As a reminder, our copyrighted MICA system features five categories of one to five points each, mastery, innovation, catchiness, authenticity, and artistic statement. The lowest score is a five because some music is better than none, and the top score possible for a song is a 25. Let's get the obvious question out of the way first. Why is it called Yes, We Have No Bananas? Well, because one of the writers, Frank Silver, used to walk from his hotel to his gig, passing a fruit vendor along the way, and that fruit vendor would start every sentence with yes, even ones that were negative. And so now we have this song. So if you're ever unique enough and repetitive enough, this is proof that you too could be immortalized in a song by strangers and made into a strange time capsule that people like me will talk about 98 years later. This song was a number one hit for five weeks in a row in 1923, and it would even see an ironic revival in World War II when the UK banned imports of bananas. The song would be remade by Louis Prima, Benny Goodman, and Al Jolson even in an opera format that was satirical since on its face this is a silly song. This version performed by Billy Jones features a Dixieland jazz arrangement featuring horns and banjo front and center, leading into a bridging clarinet playing the verse melody. It's a decent version of the sound, but doesn't push any boundaries, and when combined with the singing, we have a mastery and innovation score of 3. Catchiness is a 3 by today's standards, and you can hear a 4 version in Benny Goodman's and Louis Prima's versions, which would come along much later in the electronic era, and Prima's even adds some comic lyrical sections along with his stellar band. But you can imagine, certainly, how at the time when the song came out, it would have been fairly often requested. It's a fun dance song that would liven any mood. Artistic statement is a three, since though the material is silly, the whole song supports the joke. And authenticity is a two, since we really don't have any reason to believe that though there was an accented salesman, that it was this exaggerated. So we have a total MICA score of 14 out of 25 points. Moving on to Billy Murray, we have Wedding Bells Are Breaking Up That Old Gang of Mine. And I like how this one started out with the wedding march and was really surprised that the point of view in the song wasn't that of a husband longing to go out with his pals while constrained to the house, but instead from the point of one of his friends who whines that no one wants to hang out at the bar anymore. This is straight up the sentiment that you will still hear from anyone in their 20s who is seeing all of their friends get married and hasn't yet found a relationship to occupy their own time. If you don't believe me, scroll Twitter for about 20 minutes on any Friday or Saturday night after the pandemic's over, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the second half of the song even features a well-executed skit, where the married character Walter is boasting that he is the boss of his own house, only to be found out and ordered home by his wife, who makes sure to spit some venom at his no-good corner-loafing friend. Overall, the song is a well-done comic skit, but less of a standout musically, and earns a MICA score of 3, 2, Two, three, two for a total of 12. Taking a look at the Wildcat Blues, Sidney Bechet is one of the most important jazz soloists out there. And so, even though this is a Clarence Williams 5 song, we have to acknowledge his presence and his contribution. Because in Wildcat Blues, we get a really good feeling for why he's important. 
At around 1 minute 30, Bechet gets a chance to strut his stuff with his unique soprano saxophone, which is different from the standard saxophone in that it has a different shape where the bow does not lead into a bell. And if you find yourself scratching your head at all those saxophone anatomy terms, it's equally correct to say there's no curvy bit going into the flared end of the horn. Now, Bechet started playing as a clarinetist, but while touring, found a soprano saxophone, and they look about the same shape, but they're played differently. Bechet climbs and makes big leaps amongst his own notes in a really interesting way, and his band stays together well with him. One of the things that Bechet is extremely well known for, and is on display during his second set of breaks around 2 minute 20 to 35, is his vibrato, which gives a great sense of warmth and interest to the notes. Mastery here is a four with innovation a four as well for Bechet's use of the soprano saxophone. Catchiness is a three since a lot of these Dixieland jazz and ragtime sounds are starting to sound very similar to me. And this one is fun, but nothing I need to rehear. Authenticity is a three and artistic statement a four for a total mica score of 18. I am very much looking forward to the arms race between Armstrong and Bechet that is yet to come. If you'd like to skip ahead of the rest of the class, Bechet's cover of Summertime is well known as one of the best. Our next song is You Gotta See Mama Every Night, and the last time we heard this song was from Sophie Tucker, and right from the outset I like her version better. If you didn't hear that version, it's in episode 1923-1. It's a simple song which lists off the reasons why Dolly Kay is no longer comfortable being a side chick paramour, and honestly the arrangement in this version is better than Tucker's, but the problem is that Kay's voice trills so violently in the sustained notes that it's distracting and takes away from the song. The climbing chord sections are certainly interesting and enjoyable, to the point of even being unique, but overall this version falls a bit flat despite the musical help. Mastery is a 2, innovation a 3, catchiness a 2, authenticity a 2, and artistic statement a 3, totaling 12. I just went back and looked at Tucker's score, which was a 16, and that seems about right in comparison to this version of the song. If I could copy and paste, I would take Tucker's voice over Dolly K's band. Honestly, if I could copy and paste, I would have someone who actually speaks French say this next title, so I'm going to pre-apologize to our French listeners for what I'm about to do to your language. In Felix Mayall's Elle Vendée de Petit Gâteau, we have certainly an interesting song. So Felix Mayall himself was an interesting character, and as we said, he was a French performer who would inspire many of the performers of his era. This song stands as an interesting contrast to the jazz, blues, and ragtime influences in the U.S. at the time, since this music is symphonic in contrast. First, the song name translates to She Sells Little Cakes. Mayall was a comic performer, generally, and this song translates lewdly about a bakery owner who was known to be kind and lovely. Well, one day a man came into her shop and said he wanted her heart, and he made innuendos to her. By the end, he wouldn't leave, and so she asked him if he wanted a dry bread cake, and he said he didn't like them, and she said maybe you'd eat it better with shit. So, France in 1923, everybody. The song is fun, but not anything to write home about, featuring unchallenged singing and playing executed well for a three. Innovation is a two. Catchiness is a two as well. Authenticity is a two, since it's an obviously false or exaggerated story, but it does present a unique picture of France where a woman is being harassed and stands up to the man doing it, and so receives a three for artistic statement. And that lines up well with what I've heard about Mayall in general. He was known to be a stand-up guy for women, and that's especially important in 1920s France where misogyny was a big deal. So the total for Mayall, she sells little cakes, because I'm never saying that in French again, is a 12. On to Isham Jones, and we have a few songs of his because he had a very successful year. The first of which is Who's Sorry Now? 
Now this song is less of a standout until you get into Joan's saxophone solo in the middle section, where you can hear how sweetly he is able to make that metal sing. This song in my opinion is not much to worry about, and most certainly the version that we should all be more familiar with with this song is not Joan's, but that of Connie Francis in 1957. That song would peak at number 4 then, and ironically Jones would hit number 3 with this version in 1923. That being said, Connie Francis's voice is not to be missed, and I've added that version to the end of this playlist. Mastery on this version is held to a 3, buoyed by Jones' saxophone, but held back by the shrillness of the horn in the other sections. Innovation is a similar 3, with catchiness, authenticity, and artistic statement matching for a total score of 15. It does not yet seem that Jones has broken out of his shell to wow us yet. Okay, we found it. It's Farewell Blues. Because in Farewell Blues, we have a striking version of Dixieland jazz sound, especially with the supporting sounds of the clarinet. The band seems to be exploring some new textures in the sound, especially by adding some of the darker aspects of it that we heard in the Georgian Sister Kate in our last episode. It's still bright, it's still jumping but there's a section of shuddering and pulsing sounds that are trying to do something completely different than we've heard from anyone outside of Paul Whiteman's classical-inspired exploration so far. Farewell Blues seems like a subdued and haunted version of the jazz that others were bringing to the table. It's certainly well done and obviously special. The violin around 1 minute and 5 seconds specifically was a different sound and could have been inspired by the country artists that we were starting to hear around the same time it brings in its own individual sway to the sound. Mastery is a four, along with innovation. Catchiness is a three, but authenticity and artistic statement are also fours for a total mica of 19. This was a very welcome surprise after Who's Sorry Now. Now into a much less impressive one, Marchetta was written in 1913, and it's more or less a standard dancing song. If you like the Family Guy episodes where Seth MacFarlane makes you watch Brian and Stewie go on ludicrous adventures together, You'll notice they always feature Road in the title like Road to Rhode Island. That's because they're titled and structured in reference to old Hollywood movies like Road to Zanzibar and Road to Singapore, which were written by the same man who wrote Marchetta, Vixer Scherzinger. Why Esham Jones covered this old song in 1923 is not really documented that I can find, but considering it was a well-recognized tune, they were probably just making an easy seller. Marchetta is the B-side of a song called Other Lips, so it was probably just a song that the band thought they could help pad the record with and that they already knew from playing clubs where it was an easy-to-dance-to tune. Nothing special here, really, with a mica score of 3-2-2-3-2. In our final song, When You Walked Out, Someone Else Walked In, that's a big middle finger to your ex, but I like the sentiment of the song since the quickest way to get over someone old is to get under someone new. Overall, the arrangement and performance doesn't do a lot for me, and the song gets threes across the board for a total score of 15, and that brings Jones' average to a 15.25 for the year. I'd like to see more of the type of music that we hear in Farewell Blues, but it doesn't seem that Jones is in his own element quite yet. Maybe 1924 will bring more expression and innovation from the Jones Orchestra. It won't be long until we find out, though, because we'll be back next Monday with our final episode of 1923 Music, featuring Al Jolson and Paul Whiteman. We have been getting lit up for our treatment of Jolson's blackface performances on our YouTube channel, but we don't mind the heat. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to know what you think, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we'll have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail, or on Twitter at Cunning Review. 
If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own band's. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast everywhere you can. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. Nobody else works here.